Welcome to our podcast from the ARC Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC Africa correspondent, and my co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, who heads up Africa Risk Consulting. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs, and our podcast seeks to shed light on a continent which continues to fascinate and draw us in. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Good to chat to you. Good to chat to you too. Moving straight in, we've got a great podcast today. We'll be asking what future for the Russian mercenary outfit, the Wagner Group, in Africa after its head, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was exiled to Belarus following an aborted rebellion, part of an internal power struggle with President Putin. Yes, we'll be hearing from CBS News Africa correspondent Deborah Patter, who's been investigating this shadowy outfit and their illicit trading in African minerals, which helped to bankroll their operations worldwide, we suspect. Here's a flavour of what she has to say. Either Russia is going to dig in a lot deeper um, and send different people to run it, as it were. It will just fall under the Ministry of Defence and be more formal, which will make it a lot harder for Russia to deny them. Um, now they'll have acknowledged, essentially, the, that sort of murky relationship because they rely so heavily on Russian military assets. Or you're going to see another group come in its place, which could be Russian or could be something else. Yes, really looking forward to that, Tara. But first, here's a look at some of the stories which have been in the news since our last podcast. Putin is accusing the Wagner mercenary group of what he's calling an armed rebellion. The head of the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, says his forces uh, have taken control of military facilities in the region of Rostov-on-Don. The US Coast Guard has just said Presumed human remains were recovered from the Titan submersible wreckage. Now the president of Sierra Leone, Julius Mardabio, won a re-election after defeating his challenger, Samura Kamara, in Saturday's presidential poll. To Paris, where world leaders are meeting for a global finance summit. High on the agenda is finding ways to help developing countries meet the challenges of climate change. Plus, the World Bank has announced a new plan to let countries hit by natural disasters pause debt payments. It's now official. President Bola Tinubu has approved the appointment of the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Femi Bajabiamila, as Chief of Staff, and the former Deputy Governor of Jigawa State, Ibrahim Adejaya, as Deputy Chief of Staff. Well, Nigeria really is the country to watch. I often call it the tethered giant because it is the continent's largest and most significant economy and it's been very held back in recent years. But President Bola Tinubu has continued to his shock treatment to try and kickstart the economy. And you will recall, Karen, that, uh, that Tinubu suspended the central bank governor and scrap state fuel subsidies that have both been a drain on the economy. Yes, and we've talked a lot about those uh, subsidies. Well, under new management, the central bank has stopped propping up the currency. And what that means is that the currency is actually halved in value. And obviously, that's quite a substantial drop, but it's one that 
has been long expected and now really affects, reflects its real value. Hasn't that added to inflation in Nigeria? Yes, it has. In fact, both measures, uh, scrapping the fuel subsidies and freeing the exchange rate are inflationary and food price inflation is now reflecting that at about 22% and is expected to feed over time throughout the economy. So it's it's pretty much here to stay. Now, rather interestingly, scrapping those fuel subsidies in Nigeria has had an unintended consequence, hasn't it, Tara? Yes, the hike in fuel prices has spiked fuel prices in neighbouring countries, in particular in Benin and Cameroon. And what that tells us is that Nigerian taxpayers have been subsidising fuel smuggled into neighbouring countries, which I'm sure they would not be happy about. Yes, and let's look at Kenya. The new president, William Ruto, who was elected just last year, is facing a lot of pushback after he introduced controversial tax legislation which doubles tax on petroleum products. And what's more, he's introducing taxes on housing and medical insurance, taxes that will mean that some middle-class Kenyans will be paying around 40% of their monthly income in taxes. Yeah, and this from a president who came to power, Tara, vowing to be the voice of the Kenyan hustler, the hustler nation or the working person, and he promised to put their interests first. Yes, Karen, the justification for these massive tax hikes is that Kenya has to service a whopping $67 billion in US dollars in debt. These taxes are part of the conditions that are attached to an IMF loan and those in turn may limit what William Ruto's populist government is actually able to deliver to the people. Yeah, well, Ruto's nemesis is the veteran opposition politician Ryla Odinga. We've heard lots about him. Well, he's been seeking to capitalise on the situation, staging on-off protests in recent months over the high cost of living. And the fear is that Ruto will adopt a more stringent response to these public protests with even tougher policing. And there are very real worries of a repeat of a return to the authoritarianism that we saw in Kenya under former President Moy. More positive news out of Zambia. It has reached crucial debt relief in a deal brokered by President Macron between Zambia and Zambia's biggest creditor, China. And while the deal will finally allow Zambia to use its IMF bailout, lots of news about the IMF activities this this podcast, Karen. But on yeah. a closer inspection, China gave very little away. Um, and it is, but it is nevertheless worth remembering that Zambia has ambitious plans to double its production in copper, and this deal will at least help. Spot on. You're listening to The Ark Insider with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, although we've been talking about the world of Russian-backed mercenaries in Africa since the start of this podcast series, the Wagner Group, a Russian private military contractor, was recently thrown into the international spotlight when its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, marched his men to Rostov-on-Don, about a 1,000 kilometres south of Moscow, in an apparent rebellion against Putin's administration. Then, in a dramatic capitulation, Prigozhin halted his men at the last minute and agreed a deal with Mr Putin, which involved the man better known as Putin's chef, going into exile in neighbouring Belarus. Yes, an extraordinary turn of events. But what it means for Wagner's Africa operations is something that experts have been speculating over in recent days. Not least because sanctions imposed by the United States in the wake of this attempted military coup 
seem to sidestep the fact that Wagner Group has a considerable presence in Africa, supporting coup leaders in Central Africa and in Mali in particular. Yes, and Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has confirmed that Wagner militias will continue to serve in those two countries. So what does it all mean? Well, we're joined by CBS News Africa correspondent Deborah Patter. Deborah, hello from me. I'm in South Africa as well. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, Corin, and hello there, Tara. Uh, hello, Deborah. Good to have you on the podcast. Now, Deborah, you've been tracking the Wagner Group's operations in Africa for a long time and recently televised a report on how the Wagner Group is funding Russia's war in Ukraine through its operations in Africa, plundering minerals from places like the Central African Republic, which we mentioned in the intro. For our listeners who may be less familiar with these guns for hire, who exactly are the Wagner Group? Well, the Wagner Group is a group of Russian mercenaries. They really were the personal project of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man you referred to, who led that failed military um, coup, mutiny, make of it what you will, mm. um, on the last weekend. And this group of mercenaries popped up essentially in 2014. Yevgeny Prigozhin was once a criminal. He was in jail. He came out. He got lucrative um, catering contracts. That's where he got the name Putin's chef mm-hmm. from. And then when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, he made the leap from caterer to warlord. And in that moment started the mercenary group. It became more powerful. He never, however, um, said that he was linked to it, never claimed leadership. It was always a shadowy group that um, was essentially Russia's plausible deniability wherever Mm -hmm. it operated. They started turning up in Ukraine, then in Syria, Libya, Central African Republic, Mali, Sudan, um, and a few other places, Madagascar, another one, doing different things. Sometimes they provide military muscle to proper uh, dodgy leaders, dictators, coup-proof presidents in Africa. Other times it's through um, internet and um, interfering in elections through digital means as well. So they, they have very wide tentacles. And it's only last year, really, that Yevgeny Prigozhin stepped out of the shadows and claimed leadership mm. of the Wagner Group as they started getting some success in Ukraine. And Deborah, how are they getting access both to the countries that you mentioned, like Central African Republic, and how are they gaining resources? Well, as, for example, in Africa, where um, France has pulled out of a lot of countries, if you think of the Francophone countries like Central African Republic and Mali, mm. uh, Burkina Faso is another one that could be on the line soon. And as there's been a gap there, um, there's, there's huge insurgencies in both Mali and the Central African Republic. It's been deeply unstable. And so these governments have allowed Wagner to come and ostensibly to protect them. In fact, Russia yeah. says they are instructors. That's nonsense. They are full-on mercenaries yeah. involved in um, armed war, warfare there. And essentially what they do is they provide military muscle. They prop up these leaders. They protect the president, for example. They wage the war on their behalf. But in exchange... They are paid in mineral wealth. So they get lucrative contracts to mine gold, to mine diamonds, um, forestry contracts to chop down timber. And that essentially is where they make their money. They get these um, resources out of the country illegally, without detection, evading sanctions. Um, And that is essentially worth billions of dollars for this group through a galaxy of shell companies, a whole network of front companies. Deborah, we've seen this in across West Africa 
Africa before. I mean, if we look at the private military contractors like the UK-based Sandline and South Africa's executive outcomes, and even US companies like Blackwater operating in Iraq on, you know, again, in return for concessions, what's different about Wagner? What makes them stand out? Absolutely. There's nothing new about mercenaries operating um, around the world from a whole lot of different countries. I think the interesting thing about Wagner is that, first of all, it's part of Russia's foreign policy. As Russia tries to get allies around the world with its war in Ukraine, facing um, sanctions, facing, you know, extreme um, disapproval from the West, battling in that area, this essentially is a way to make friends, continue old friendships from Cold War days, and to capitalize on that and extend its influence militarily across the African continent. What you're essentially seeing is it's almost like colonialism 2.0, because you've, you know, You've had colonialism in the past. Now you've got Russia gunning for Africa. You've got China um, developing its economic wealth there. And America, which used to have a foothold um, in the African continent, doesn't even get a look in anymore, not even with sort of cultural soft um, influence, like through its um, cultural mediums. You find even television stations are either broadcasting Chinese programs or Russian programs. So this is part of their broader influence. The mercenary thing is really just one aspect of it. It's not the biggest part at all. And let's remember, Africa is deeply, deeply rich in natural resources. Mm. There's a lot of money to be made on this continent. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting because that tie between Moscow and the Wagner Group was really sort of confirmed uh, just in the past week or so with, I think, mm. Putin saying, you know, we've spent huge amounts of money on, on the Wagner Group. I mean, it's not quite clear given the events and this this rebellion, um, which was in response to Moscow's attempt to effectively nationalise the Wagner Group in, into the main army. What does it actually mean for Africa in, in future? Because it's still clear that Wagner will be operating in CAR and in Mali. Um, but is it still being commanded by Prigozhin? And is he likely to expand? Well, you know, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because it was a staggering admission by Vladimir Putin. A mm. billion dollars worth of military con- contracts, a yeah. billion dollars worth of catering contracts. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. That doesn't even cover, um, you know, what's being done in Africa. And I think that was part of the, mu- the mutiny is that Prigozhin is a desperate man. He wants to main control, maintain control of Wagner because it is so lucrative, not just in Ukraine, but also across Africa. Um, and will he be able to do that from Belarus? It's uncertain. You've heard Lavrov, the foreign minister from Russia, saying absolutely it will continue. And you've heard the Africa, Central African pres, uh, Republican president saying, President Twadera saying, they don't care what they're called, Wagner, Beethoven, whatever, they'll take anybody mm-hmm. from Russia who's going to help them there. Um, so they're desperate for support because what it does is provide a gap in these countries. You have an insurgency in Mali, a deeply unstable um, country in Central African Republic. They need these mercenaries. Without them, their governments could actually fall. Yeah. But will they be able to continue with Wagner in its present form? Because Wagner has essentially enjoyed impunity. It's not just that they're mining these resources. Let's remember, 
They have committed brutal, horrific acts of violence. They have violated human rights across the continent. Massacres in the Central African Republic. We reported on one in Bambara, the mining town there, mm-hmm. in, and, and elsewhere. Really, really brutal, brutal violence um, with no punishment whatsoever. But now it's unclear as to who's in control. Will they be able to get away with it? Will they receive all the weapons that they need to continue their work? Mm-hmm. Mm. So, Deborah, we are seeing a massive withdrawal of France from West Africa over time. Wagner temporarily filled the gap. Now Wagner is essentially headless what then does it mean for the geopolitical instability in West Africa? I mean, isn't this just an open door for Islamist extremist groups to gain ground? It's deeply destabilizing. I mean, the Sahel has long been a hotbed of extremists from different groups. You've got, uh, you know, groups that are linked to ISIS, groups that are linked to Al-Qaeda, that switch allegiances depending, you know, which way the wind blows, an entire criminal network also that operates there. Mm. So you're talking about countries that are already deeply unstable. Um, I'm, you know, I, I would argue that Wagner has not made them more stable. They've just contributed more to the violence um, in a different way, but helped keep whichever leader is, is, is in power there. Um, so yes, it opens up that door to these insurgent groups to, to wage war. You know, if I was an insurgent watching this, I'd think, wow, this is a gap. And do you think there will be a Western response to this? So, so we know the, the, the French have, have moved out of, of Mali. Um, we've heard sanctions being imposed uh, to a limited degree uh, by the United States, although they don't seem to have touched the, the operations in, in Africa. Can you expect to see some kind of more robust Western response? You know, what, what, what do you think the likely trajectory is? This is, this is an open book and anyone who claims to know which way things are going to go when it comes to, you know, Russia, Ukraine and the geopolitical situation, um, surrounding it, um, would be a very wise person in my mind mm. because nothing has gone according to plan. But I think what is particularly interesting, if you look just recently, um, America put more sanctions, um, particularly on Wagner Central African Republican operations, but they were very, um, mild, in my opinion. They, they named a group the Midas Resource Group, another group, which were very, very well known. Everybody knows those companies. I'm sure that Wagner's long changed the names and is operating under different ones by now. And, and a Russian, um, foreign operator who was in Mali, he also was sanctioned. But, there was a huge expectation by many African observers that America would actually declare Wagner a terrorist organization. Um, At the moment, it's only declared a transnational criminal organization, which would make it a lot harder for it to operate um, in any of these places. It is a gap for America, but whether they'll seize it remains to be seen because they're also in a struggle for leadership. You know, the United States is going into an election year next year. Um, It's unclear who's going to win. Um, Donald Trump is once again um, running for elections. Um, So I think it's going to be a particularly difficult time. Um, And I think what you're going to see, sadly, is possibly um, more instability and more violence because groups in the Sahel that you were referring to, Tara, have been waiting for a moment like this. You know, there are sort of latent um, latent attempts by Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana to try and respond to the 
the increasing threat in the north, but they don't seem to um, have amounted to much so far. None of those um, ventures have amounted so much. Russia has deep tentacles in these countries. It's not that easy to enmesh them in places like Central African Republic, in places like Mali, and in other countries where perhaps it's not so well known and not so obvious. Because remember, it's not just military backing that they provide. There are other ways. They interfere in elections. They've had troll farms Mm. in places like Ghana, for that matter. Um, So those tentacles are far-reaching and they're not so easily replaced. And I don't think Russia is going to want to um, replace replace them and expect things to work out the way that they did before. So what you're going to see, I think, is... Either Russia is going to dig in a lot deeper um, and send different people to run it, as it were. It will just fall under the Ministry of Defense and be more formal, which will make it a lot harder for Russia to deny them. Um, now they'll have acknowledged, essentially, the, that sort of murky relationship because they rely so heavily on Russian military assets. Or you're going to see another group come in its place, which could be Russian or could be something else. I mean, it's interesting, the focus has been very much on Francophone Africa. But of course, one place that really does sort of strike a chord with the United States is Sudan. Um, strategically really, really important. And Russia's backed um, Hemeti, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces in that country. And I'm wondering, you know, would an escalation there wake the United States up and and prompt some more dramatic action, do you think? Or is it still that Africa is seen as one big mass that actually sanctions have shown or the lack thereof uh, is just not a priority? I think um, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has certainly made Africa um, a priority. I mean, more visits from that Secretary of State than any Secretary of State previous. And it's sort of counterbalancing Lavrov's visits as well, isn't it? It's almost like a competition between the two sides. Absolutely. I mean, there really is this big scramble for Africa all over again. Um, And in fact, there's talk that there could be a visit by um, President Biden, which shows the importance. Um, You've seen leaders wooing this continent. So I think I think it certainly is in America's size. I think it's certainly important. I don't think they're they're giving up at all. And Sudan really was a tipping point there because we saw um, how engaged America was in the you know, the conflict there, and that that conflict is still ongoing. It has not been resolved. Wagner obviously backed Hemeti because they want to gain access not just to the gold in Sudan, but the port of Sudan is a really valuable means for them because part of gallivanting across Africa by Prigozhin and his mercenaries is to get resources and money and you've got to get it out somehow. I think America will continue its diplomatic efforts in terms of boots on the ground. I don't see that. Mm. You've tracked as well the actual companies that um, that Wagner um, that Wagner sets up. You were talking about um, about I mean of, you were talking about new companies that every time that um, they get caught out. They just form another front company. And where are these companies registered and how do they operate? What's the network look like? In Central African Republic, a forestry concession was given to a company called Bois Rouge to log timber, worth a lot of money. 
That company was registered to a Central African Republican woman. But when you dig a little bit deeper, they suddenly show up in at a Chinese trade event mm -hmm. run by two Russian men. When you dig a little bit deeper, you see they're paid by another group that is actually Wagner linked and run by Prigozhin. Their salaries are actually paid by Wagner. So we went to this, you know, to do this story looking for this company, Bois Rouge, to see if they were on any of export documents. We, we got a, you know, a whole lot of documents um, that we sourced from um, whistleblowers. Bois Rouge wasn't mentioned anywhere, but we kept seeing a company called Wood International Group. Dig a little bit deeper. It takes a long time. You know, it's the most unglamorous work, investigative journalism. Basically, we are in a hotel room combing through mounds of documents. Yeah. Eventually, oh, Wood International Group has the same telephone number, the same address as Bois Rouge. Dig a little bit deeper. They have the same company registration number to the same Central African Republican woman. So it is essentially the same company. They just change names quickly, easily like that. And I think in different countries, they're set up in a different way. Um, it, there are a lot of European companies who might have even been buying wood from Wood International Group or Bois Rouge, perhaps not realizing they yeah. were Wagner linked. That is how smart and clever they are. There are hundreds of front companies like this. It also makes use of things like um, the United Arab Emirates um, free trade zones yeah. to take its gold through. You know, the planes go there, they go dark over Africa, they suddenly appear somewhere in the UAE where gold is very easily brought into the country and suddenly you don't know what the origin of the gold is mm -hmm. anymore and it's sold on the open market legally. Absolutely. This is something we've been tracking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Wow, Deborah, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary investigation you've been involved in and it's an extraordinary story of, of, of Wagner in Africa. And as you say, we really don't know what the future direction will, will be um, and whether there will be more Wagners or Wagner by a different name and whether Prigozhin will still be the leader. Absolutely. It's, it's an interesting one to watch. Who could have predicted that, you know, Putin's longtime ally would turn against him. Or has he really turned against him is always the question. <laughs> I, I think on this one he has, actually. I think he has. I, I think he's turned against him. I think, I think it was an act of desperation. He was losing power and losing money. And he figured Putin would come out on his side and it didn't go down so well. I mean, that's why he backed down so quickly. But I've been hearing just conversations with journalists in the past few days. And, and you know, Putin doesn't let his enemies... Um, sort of run amok. And that's the thing with Prigozhin, right? They were allies, they were right. colleagues. And so, you know, Prigozhin presumably is also worried for his, his personal safety, for his life. You would think he's not going to go near any open windows or mainly to keep his <laughs> personal food taster close to hand. <laughs> exactly. Yes. What a murky story. Um, just sad because, of course, real lives are at stake here. And you mentioned the human rights atrocities, which are really well documented and really quite appalling. But but really, thank you so much for talking us through that, Deborah. That's been absolutely fascinating. Such a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The ARC Insider. If you're interested, ARC publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can subscribe to these at info at africarisconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now. <laughs>